Please note, this episode includes some spoilers for the HBO documentary, Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. Before we begin, this episode contains some offensive language and descriptions of violence. It also references suicide. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. Please take care while listening. It's January 4th, 1990. Chuck Stewart stops his car on the lower deck of the Tobin Bridge. He leaves a handwritten note on the front passenger seat and steps out. The engine's still running. Chuck walks to the concrete edge and peers down into the Mystic River, climbs over a green metal railing and falls 145 feet into the frigid water below. In this moment, everything changes. The police theories, the media narratives, the citizen outrage, it's all wrong. It's as if everyone is peering down into the water where Chuck Stewart landed, and they see themselves in the reflection. It's ugly. TV reporter Jack Harper was sent to the bridge that day. I remember it was cold, and I was sent down to the uh, dock because there was a report of a man had jumped in the water. And I'll never forget it. It was uh, the first assistant district attorney, Leary, was there. And I remember standing there with him, and I said, oh, my God, this poor guy, how much worse can it get? What a terrible ending. He just couldn't take it anymore. And I understand he said, you have no idea. You don't know what happened. It's not what you think. He killed her. He set this up. He just committed suicide. Everything stopped. The reporter called his newsroom. I said, the district attorney says that it is Charles Stewart, but he killed her. It was a hoax. He set it up. And they're like, silence. I was just kicking myself. We all were kicking ourselves. How could we not have figured this out? How could we not have known? Carol's friend from the accounting firm, Barbara Williamson, remembers riding waves of disbelief and guilt. How easy it had been to believe the lie. I had to rewrite the story in my head. I had to recapitulate the whole experience through a completely different lens. And I was just so full of shame for what happened to the African-American people in Boston, feeling like I was a part of it. I was complicit. Um, No, I didn't pull the trigger. No, I didn't point the finger at the wrong guy. But I'm white, and I'm enmeshed in this mess. And this is the thing. Everyone was enmeshed in this mess. Everyone had been sucked into this drama. It only took two words from Chuck as he lay bleeding on a stretcher. Black man. And all this machinery, the police, the press, the politicians, kicked into gear. These institutions did what they always did. What they always had done. Find the black man. To pull off his racist hoax, Chuck needed everyone's help. And he knew how to get it. He knew what story to tell. 
and people didn't just believe it. They rallied around it. That sense of complicity was uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I don't like being made to feel racist and, and in fear of blacks because there are just as many rotten white people as there are blacks. When Chuck jumped and the truth was revealed, some people had to confront the fact that they were exactly who Chuck thought they were. Charles Stewart played a racist game on us. We cannot forget, however, that he played out that game on a stage which was already set. It's ingrained. Blame the black guy. It's really easy because it works. It's always somehow the mysterious black man who's done the terrible thing. I have had enough. This community has had enough. I think it's the biggest embarrassment in the city of Boston. Boston. I remember walking into the newsroom that morning. We didn't have Twitter or text or any of that, so I had no idea what had happened. And I get in, and it's like, Chuck jumped off the bridge? What? Two top editors gathered a bunch of us up. I remember the city editor said, is this guilt or grief? Which I just thought was crazy. You know, like, guilt, obviously. I think white people were more shocked than black people, without a doubt. But that morning, nobody had time to think philosophically about what all this meant. It was, who's going to go where? Who's going to do what? Everybody's heads were spinning. The cops, the politicians, the media, regular people. We were all just trying to figure out what the hell just happened. I'm going to speak upon I'm Adrian Walker, and this is Murder in Boston, the untold story of the Charles and Carol Stewart shooting. Episode 6, The Mask Comes Off. Peter O'Malley called me at my house, and he said, that fucking asshole jumped. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. I said, who? He goes, Chuck Stewart just jumped off the fucking Mystic River Bridge. And I said, you're shitting me. This is Steve Sparazia News Center for live at the Charlestown Navy Yard. This morning, we had a rather tragic and bizarre story to report. About 8 o'clock. The search ended. A scam. A shocking twist to a highly publicized Boston crime. The husband becomes a suspect and commits suicide. Well, I think it's fair to say that the... uh, focus of this investigation uh, uh, changed dramatically yesterday. That morning, as divers searched the water, District Attorney Newman Flanagan briefed the media at the river's edge. For months, Flanagan had played, pushed, and spun reporters. Now, he tried to explain everything. Flanagan, are you confirming this morning that Mr. Stewart was, he had become a suspect and he knew it? Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair comment on uh, the entire matter. Uh, Mr. Stewart uh, uh, became a, a, a suspect. Uh, of course, uh, we had a number of people that we were looking at. Uh, among them uh, was Mr. Stewart. And uh, we made a dramatic move towards Mr. Stewart uh, as a result of information we received yesterday. The night before Chuck's suicide, his younger brother Matthew went to police with an astonishing story. There was no black man. Chuck was the killer. And Matthew was there that night to help Chuck cover it up. 
but in recent days, Chuck got wind of what was coming. He talked to his lawyer and took off. He jumped before the police could get answers from him. In his car, Charles Stewart left a brief note, four sentences, saying in part, I love my family. The last four months have been real hell. All the allegations have taken all my strength. The whole time the police were tearing apart Mission Hill, there was a completely separate drama playing out on the other side of the Mystic River, up on the North Shore, where the Stewart family and their friends lived. It took months, but finally Matthew told the truth to police. These statements clearly exculpated Willie Bennett and clearly inculpated Charles Stewart in the murder of his wife and infant son. After a careful review of this new evidence, I instructed Boston Police homicide detectives to arrest Charles Stewart for the murder. But before police could arrest Chuck, he went to the bridge. TV cameras caught divers hoisting Chuck's body onto a search boat. You could see his jeans, white sneakers, and windbreaker. The divers put Chuck's body into a blue body bag. Chuck's cousin, Patrick Reardon, recalls the Stewarts watching it happen in real time. We were sitting in my aunt's living room, and I was with her, and I can remember feeling, how could this woman be, be bearing up when on Channel 5 or whatever we were watching? You could see the state police boat pulling my cousin out of the water. For Carol's family, the Demades, it was a different type of nightmare. Shocked? It doesn't even begin to describe the feeling. Carol's brother, Carl Demady. My initial reaction was one of deep guilt because my feeling was he had committed suicide because he just couldn't take the fact that he had lost his wife and his son. Carol's family had never suspected a thing. They felt betrayed, not just by Chuck, but by all the Stuarts. That is just mind-boggling, that they could sit with us or allow us to visit Chuck, you know, for us to cry over Chuck, to, to pray for Chuck's recovery, knowing that Chuck was responsible for what happened to Carol. They'd been mourning for months with Chuck. My dad was so upset that he literally had to be hospitalized. The utter betrayal, it's beyond belief. It was once again, the biggest news story in the country. Topping News 7 tonight, a bizarre and sinister twist in the Carol Stewart murder case. A man killed himself in Boston today. That would appear to close the books on a story of tragedy, violence, and death that sparked a national outcry last fall. Many questions remain about the Stewart case. The most puzzling, why? Experienced investigators, veteran reporters, and later, the nation were fooled by a scheme so diabolical to cover up a crime so brutal that even the most skeptical among us believe the unbelievable. Among black people, the news hit differently. Let's start with Willie Bennett's family. Chuck had picked Willie out of the police lineup just a few days earlier. Willie was individual number three, the one whose profile made Chuck so nervous. Chuck told the police he was 99% sure that individual number three was the shooter. 
Willie was languishing in jail, unsure of his fate or if he'd be charged with Carol and Christopher's murders when Chuck went off the bridge. The Bennetts had spent weeks telling anybody who would listen that Willie was innocent, but nobody believed them. All the time that my son didn't have nothing to do with it, and um, he was innocent all the time. But I know one thing, I'm just glad that shit's over. My brother wasn't the one that did it, and I'm glad they found out that he was the one that killed his own wife. Willie's nephew, Joey Bennett, was especially relieved. I was happy he jumped, because I was like, now my uncle gonna go home. You know, now he's gonna go home. If he didn't jump, he was gonna go to jail. And it wasn't just the Bennetts who were feeling this whiplash. Here's journalist Howard Bryant. I remember feeling a certain sense of immediate relief that it wasn't the black guy after all. And then I remember feeling an immediate sense of anger that it was never the black guy. What was this all about? What was this for? Who did this serve? I don't think Charles Stewart had to consume a whole lot of media to believe it. It's ingrained. Blame the black guy. It's really easy because it works. And there are so many examples of the racial hoax because it works. Bryant believes there were holes in Chuck's story that police and the media should have jumped on immediately. In the course of our reporting, a lot of people, especially black people, told us that they had never believed Chuck's story. It was on the news that a black man had killed this pregnant white woman over there at Parker Street. <laughs> and the girl that lived upstairs said, that was no black man, that was a white man. And probably it's her husband. And we just laughed about it and went on about our business. We even heard that some cops had suspicions. A couple of days after this happened, this one woman, a female police officer, black, she walked by, she said, that man killed his wife. And she said that, she just blurted it out. And people who knew Mission Hill had seen glaring inconsistencies in Chuck's story. You know, we knew the neighborhood. Um, It just didn't fit. Attorney Leslie Harris said people saw problems with Chuck's story on the very first night. Remember, Chuck told 911 dispatchers that he was lost and there was nobody around. People were out on the street. It was a warm evening. He could have blown his horn and got help in so many different places. And one of the things that stood out was that he parked his car perfectly. You know, saying if he had gone straight, he had to know the neighborhood. He was a block from the hospital. Just a lot of things came up that just didn't make sense. Leslie went to church with some of Chuck's nurses. They were talking about the holes in Chuck's story, too. They said he was too callous and too cold towards the death of his wife. Leslie had defended the first suspect who was picked up for the case, the guy with the tracksuit soaking in a sink. When Willie Bennett was arrested, Leslie was sure the cops had the wrong guy. I didn't think that it fit him, you know. Um, Even the worst thugs in the community have some kind of code. And shooting a pregnant woman? Willie was a tough guy. That just didn't fit him, didn't fit the image that had been painted for me and for us in the community of who Willie Bennett was. A thug, but towards other thugs. People in Mission Hill felt this awful bitterness and rage. Jeff Sanchez was one of the many, many Latino males in the neighborhood to be stopped by police after the murder. It was like, see, we told you. (laughs) 
You didn't want to listen. I'm just saying, just the people in the community. You know, everybody knew in the community. But everybody was forced to believe that, that Willie Bennett had something to do with it when people knew that that wasn't the case. But nobody wanted to listen. Nobody wanted to listen to anybody in the community. I have had enough. This community has had enough. Whenever our wife is killed, the first automatic suspect is a husband. Except when it happens in the black community. When it happens in the black community, the automatic suspect is a black man. And we're tired of that. This community has been absolutely devastated. There were cries today for the resignation of Mayor Flynn and Police Commissioner Roach. Some call for some sort of restitution for Mission Hill residents. But the bottom line among these people is that blacks in Boston, especially in Mission Hill, were dealt a grave injustice. Black men in Boston had spent the last two and a half months walking around with this constant helpless fear of being targeted as suspects. And now all that pent up anger just poured out. The black and Hispanic community has once again been the victim of a Ku Klux Klan type of night riding and a sensational rape of this community by public officials and by the media in particular. Reverend Grayland Ellis Hagler was one of the most prominent voices in Boston back then. He ran a church in Mission Hill and had witnessed firsthand police violating the civil rights of young males in the neighborhood. This time, however, the night riding was not the action of white-robed bigots, but instead the actions of a mayor, Mayor Raymond Flynn, who so quickly jumped to conclusions. Remember, Flynn had called for every available detective to be put on the case. Multiple politicians had called for bringing back the death penalty. Some politicians and media figures had called the black man Chuck described an animal. Nation of Islam minister Don Muhammad pointed out the hypocrisy. And there are some public officials who gave credence to that. I want to know now, will you call Mr. Charles Stewart an animal? The city suddenly felt like it was on the brink of violence. Again, police commissioner Mickey Roach. I was preparing for a riot. That's how serious it was in this city. You know why? Because the same people who had so much compassion for the Matey family, Carol Stewart, the child, suddenly there was only one, one emotion that they could have, and that was rage. There was no other. Mayor Flynn tried to do damage control. He went to the Bennett home, where just weeks earlier, police had banged down the door and ripped the place apart. He was ostensibly there to apologize. Willie's sister, Vita Bennett, says she had been knocked down the stairs during the raid, and she met with Flynn when he visited. He came to the house, offered him a seat. He said, no, thank you. You tell him like our house was nasty and dirty. That's how he looked at us, like we was dirty people. I said, that's all right. God's going to punish you for that. I was locked up, so I wasn't even there. Joey Bennett was still in jail the night Flynn visited, but he heard about it. Flynn came in the house. They wouldn't even move. They wouldn't go into the living room, sit down or nothing. They stood in front of the same door that they let get tore down. You could, the, 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 the ramming hole was still in the door. They came in, they stood at the closet door and gave a half-ass, we're sorry, ma'am. 
We're sorry. That was it. This is a memory that the Bennett family drags around. The insult still stings. The mayor might have been willing to apologize to the Bennett family, but he never apologized to Willie directly. Boston Mayor Ray Flynn defends the police investigation, but recognizes irreparable harm could have been done. You know, there's one thing, one redeeming situation out of this whole case. And what would have happened if Mr. Bennett were convicted of first-degree murder and the capital punishment were implemented in that regard, what would we be saying here today? We tried repeatedly to get Mayor Flynn to talk with us for this podcast. He declined. But back in 1990, as he made the rounds on TV, he didn't seem very sorry. Every investigation, every homicide in the city of Boston, no matter where it's committed, no matter who it's committed against, is always handled with the same kind of responsible responsibility and the same kind of concern. Glenn acknowledged at the time that the people of Mission Hill had suffered. And I agreed that they were being singled out. Uh, it was the, uh, the people of the city of Boston and it was the, the black community as well. But the mayor stopped short of taking responsibility or blaming the police. I don't say that anybody's at fault. I think what we ought to sit, what we ought to do is we, we ought to use this as an example. Use this as an opportunity to understand how fragile the situation really is around uh, racial incidents in any neighborhood of the city of Boston or crime in any neighborhood of the city of Boston. And let's begin a healing process and let's try to work together not to place blame on anybody. In his State of the City address, which he gave about a week after Chuck's death, Flynn laid most of the blame for what had happened squarely on Chuck. It appears that Charles Stewart has perpetrated a giant fraud on this city. He hurt everyone, especially the residents of Mission Hill. Flynn defended his call for every available detective to be put on the case. Now, when I ordered an aggressive police response, I think I did what any mayor would have done. I wanted to send a strong signal, as strong as I could, to show the city's outrage and to show that we would not tolerate such an act anywhere. Was I wrong? You know, I don't think so. And the mayor ended his speech with a very kumbaya call for healing. Now is no time to think about the past. It's a time to move forward. It's a time for leading, and it's a time for healing. But to a lot of people, this didn't look like a sincere desire for true healing. It looked like a desperate effort to bury the ugliness in the past without having to look it squarely in the face. Black leaders call bullshit. To apologize is nothing. That's like stabbing me in the back and pulling the knife out and telling me I'm sorry. Two days after the Stewart case was found out, the mayor and his people started talking about healing. Well, they've got to be crazy. I'm sick. I don't want to be healed. I want to have time to be sick for a while. If there is no cleansing of the wound, which will allow the healing to occur. Mr. Chairman, a lot of people are going to be hurt. They warned that if the city tried to just move on, 
and didn't do any real soul searching, the same thing could happen again. Mayhem is already going on. Killings are happening every day. I simply say to you, Mr. Chairman, you ain't seen nothing yet. Some in the black community worried that if the police were too harshly criticized, they would pull back on all their enforcement efforts at a time when murders were at an all-time high. We cannot allow one bizarre incident to deflect our attention from the fact that when the smoke clears and the dust settles and the Charles Stewart incident is no longer front page news, we still have a problem with guns and gangs and drugs in our community. And that problem has got to be addressed. Inside City Hall, the mayor's closest confidants could feel whatever grip they had on the situation slipping away. It was an extraordinary, damaging period for the city of Boston. It set us way back racially. Good people misunderstanding each other across racial lines. Suddenly, we were back in it. This is Neil Sullivan, Mayor Ray Flynn's top aide. I mean, Ray was focused on being in charge, being able to tell the church-going people of the city, black and white, white and black, that the mayor's got this. Uh, but we didn't have it. More than 30 years later, Neil still recalls the moment he learned Chuck jumped. He remembers walking into the mayor's office early that morning. And there's Ray standing up behind his desk with his hands propped up, leaning forward. And he looked up and he said, Neil, Stewart did it. And he just jumped off the Tobin Bridge. Neil had spent the last two months trying to manage the optics of the city's response. But he had never imagined Chuck might be the killer. I mean, who takes a gun, points it into their abdomen, and pulls the trigger as a tactic to deal with whatever he thought he was dealing with? I mean, it's a hell of a cover. (laughs) It comes at a price. But that cover hadn't fooled everyone. Neil wondered how it had fooled him. You know, perhaps... That's one of the sad effects of not having a thoroughly integrated government and society at all levels. That intelligence was not gathered. In that time, that two months, I didn't ever hear that. And suddenly, with the knowledge that it had been Chuck all along, Neil thought differently of the city's response. Flynn and his team had put their faith in Flynn's childhood friend, Police Commissioner Mickey Roach. And it didn't end well. You know, it's very painful that we decided that, well, Mickey lost control of the police and civilian control of the police department is critical. And if the commissioner doesn't have control, then the mayor doesn't have control. And that was a fissure in in our ability to lead the city. And Neil saw how city officials had set the table for the police action in Mission Hill. It wasn't just Mayor Flynn's call for every single available detective to be put on the case. It was also the stop-and-frisk policy that was in place before the Stewart shooting. I asked Neil about this. I mean, hell, I knew that we had started this by allowing the police, who were going to do it anyhow, damn it, uh, stop-and-frisk young black men 
you know, I knew that that was the slippery slope. What I didn't see was the cliff, and that was Stuart. The Stuart atrocity just unleashed police action that was, in fact, criminal. So when the police are tearing up Mission Hill oh, in the wake of this murder... It's the worst Why part. was there nothing that could be done about it? Because nobody had control. Nobody. What should have happened? Um... There should have been a police command staff that was on the scene disciplining bad behavior in real time. There should have been a strategy that was based on intelligence, not retribution. I gotta be honest. I wish Miola told me all this shit back in the 90s. The police. Boston Police Department. I seen them as bullies. You bully your way into people's lives and terrorize their lives. I was just scared of them. Don Juan Moses was 11 years old when his mom's apartment got raided by the police on the night of the murder. They're the biggest gang I ever seen in my life at that age. That's what it seemed like to me. Like, they can't do no wrong. No matter what they do, they don't do no wrong. He remembers all this the way kids remember stuff. There's a nightmare quality to some of his recollections. Facts and feelings kind of blend. We couldn't confirm all the details, but we do know that after Chuck jumped, Officials held community events to try to make amends in Mission Hill. Don Juan remembers one such community event behind the Tobin Center. The police were trying to engage folks in the neighborhood. Everybody's just gathered and trying to figure out what, what was this, what was going on, and what were they trying, I mean, what, what is this event for? Organizers set up a wooden stage. Don Juan says there were a few dozen people there. What was the ruckus about? What was this? What was they doing? What was the city trying to do? And once they sat there and gathered and listened, they was not oppressed. He remembers the officials were trying to make it right with the community. They were handing out Ben and Jerry's ice cream. They didn't apologize properly. That was not an apology to the, to the Mission Hill residents at all. Your way of doing what you did was not apology. That was not apologetic. That was not authentic. You brought Ben and Jerry's ice cream out here to try to make a peace treaty with the people. Like, you're going to smooth it over. That didn't smooth it over. A lot of them... Was toward, I mean, angered, tossed ice cream at them. They were so pissed. They just threw the ice cream. Activists is out there just going bananas. Looking at it now, they just angered, pissed off. You did this to my son. You did this to my son. You did this to my nephew. You did this to my, my husband. Don Juan's mother told him not to take the ice cream. He could tell from her face that this treat was somehow an insult. I'm looking at the expressions of the adults around me, and it's like, this is bullshit. This is what you're going to do after doing that to us? What's important here isn't the details. It's what this memory tells us about how these events shaped his personality, his life, the way he sees everything. You started fires in homes that was no fires. And for these people to feel this way against authority and trust, what authority forever? That was traumatic for life. It scarred us for them to come back to us when they finally make clarity of it, to bring Ben and Jerry's ice cream to us. That was disgusting. That didn't do nothing. That was nothing. You couldn't do nothing. That's like somebody bringing a glass of water to a building fire and wonder why it didn't go out. Glass of water can't put out a house fire that you started. And Don Juan says the fire is still burning. Yeah, it still burns. It still burns people. This is what you got to understand about Don Juan and his story and all the other kids that lived through this. It shaped them. 
it never left them. Folks, if we don't address it, we can't get we we can't get it resolved. We cannot make sure things like this don't never happen again if we don't talk about it now. Closed mouth don't get fed, Grandpa said. A closed mouth don't get fed. This case, it's not just a who done it. It's a who are we. The way this whole story unfolded can tell us a whole lot about some of the deepest, darkest parts of ourselves. Places we don't usually like to look. The Stewart case is the ultimate truth serum of the city of Boston, of who we were, and in a lot of ways, who we are. Author Howard Bryant. What is the American export when it comes to black people? Athleticism, crime, vulgarity, danger, all of those things. It makes it really, really easy to believe if you're a Charles Stewart that this is the easiest alibi I have. At the very least, it's going to buy me time because everybody wants to believe it because they already believe it. I don't even have to do any work here. This was once again the the fear of black people, the assumption of black people, the lack of regard for black people, and the lack of regard for Carol Stewart. Because getting the black guy was more important than getting her killer. We've talked a lot about race, but we haven't really talked at all about gender. Carol was a victim of domestic violence. She was murdered by her husband. And that fact is sometimes obscured or lost in the insanity of the story. The leading cause of death for pregnant women in America is homicide. That's according to a 2022 study by Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Yeah, you heard that right. A pregnant woman in this country is more likely to be killed by the father of her child than she is to die from anything related to her pregnancy. The thing to remember and never, ever forget is that race, class, and gender cannot be separated. They are the three third rails of American life. Where there is one, there's the other two, somehow, some way. And you saw it in the Stewart case, white woman, black male, poor black community. You see it everywhere. And I've always felt like if you don't look at every issue along those three lines, you're going to miss something really important. And this case was such an example of that. And you saw one thing, and everybody paid for it. That's exactly what happened in this case. When people looked at Chuck Stewart, their imaginations just failed. The narrative that took hold was that Chuck was the hero, valiantly defending his wife from a savage killer. And in that story, Willie and every other black man was cast as the stereotypical boogeyman. It's a story that keeps getting retold. Here's Reverend Greeland Alice Hagler again. Carol Stewart was a white woman that was killed by a black assailant. And that story's been told all over America, not just the Charles Stewart, but the same scenario. Tulsa riots come out of that. What happens to Emmett Till comes out of that. It's the same scenario over and over again. 
But it's not because they value women, because they still do the same old sexist crap that they've always been doing. So it's built upon a mythology, right? Mythology that is patriarchal and masculine, but it's also a a mythology that is constructed to keep other people in their place. He knew that that was a plausible story. You have his white wife shot to death in streets of Boston, Mission Hill, by a black assailant. It plays over and over again. In the many tellings of this story, Carol Stewart has always been emblematic of something else. Sometimes she's an almost holy victim, pregnant and pure. Sometimes a symbol of the lengths to which a racist society will go to defend the virtue of white womanhood. She's always been a supporting character in the story of her own murder. We asked Carol's family if they wanted to speak for this project. They said no. They have spent years talking about Carol, participating in documentaries and TV specials, and they told us they had nothing more to say. But before we go any further, I want to play you this tape of Carol's dad speaking in 1990 about losing his daughter. Of all the many hours of interviews we've listened to, this one stands out. Because in Justo Demetri's voice, all you hear is his love for his daughter. Mere words cannot express the terrible emptiness we feel or how much we miss her now. And we'll miss her for the rest of our lives. All she ever wanted was to be a good daughter, wife, mother, and be happy, be happy in her life. She was not given this opportunity to fulfill all those wishes, but as far as we are concerned, she exceeded in every way possible as a pure and loving human being. We pray that God has taken her and our beloved grandson Christopher into his embrace in heaven where they will be safe and happy with him until the time we will join them. Thank you. In reporting this story, our team has had a lot of conversations about how to make sure we're not repeating the mistakes of the past. So many true crime stories start with the dead body of a woman, and ours does too. But this isn't just another true crime podcast. When we look back at Carol, we want to see her as the three-dimensional person she was, not just as the perfect victim of a terrible crime. We've heard about her zany sense of humor, the way she danced on tables, and how excited she was to be a mom. And we want to pay her the respect of looking at her life and her death with the nuance and depth that she always deserved. Many women die at the hands of their husbands. We rarely interrogate how or why. I always thought there's more to the story, even when he jumped. I always said to myself, there's, there's more to this story. It, it doesn't end with a, a high dive. In this case, I agree with Billy Dunn. And that's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we dug this whole thing up and started knocking on doors. And in short order, we kicked a hornet's nest. Hey, Andrew, this is Dan Grabowski. Uh, you dropped off a letter at my house. You're a disgrace. It just infuriates me because I know what you're after. Now Boston wants to make 
Willie Bennett, the hero, who is another piece of trash that's been terrorizing people and polluting people with drugs his whole life. On the next episode of Murder in Boston, we'll bring you into the Boston Globe's investigation. You'll follow along with our reporters as they search for the truth. This story is far from over. Stay with us. Over the next three episodes, we'll re-examine the case and uncover new findings. Ask how so many institutions failed so badly, including our own, the media, and explore the legacy of the story for Boston and beyond. There are still countless unanswered questions in this case. For instance, no word about a motive. Or did Charles Stewart shoot himself? And did he act alone? Was there a third person in the vehicle? Was there somebody else, perhaps, in, in the backseat of that car who was, was part of this, an accomplice? It was like they were making mistakes. They were taking leaps and landing badly, and then just getting up and brushing themselves off, and they just kept going. It was indefensible then, it's indefensible now. We have nothing except for this story that is attached to our name. Let the people that are listening to this, let them give them all the facts and let them decide. I don't want to hear that you're sorry to me. After you tore up and started a war up in the black community, it's out of the news, but it's still in my head. I'm going to speak upon Murder in Boston, the untold story of the Charles and Carol Stewart shooting, is presented by the Boston Globe and HBO Documentary Films. This podcast was recorded and written by Globe journalists Evan Allen, Elizabeth Coe, Andrew Ryan, and me, your host, Associate Editor Adrian Walker. The project was led and also co-written by Assistant Managing Editor Brendan McCarthy and the Globe's Head of Audio, Kristen Nelson. Nelson served as Senior Producer. Melissa Rosales is the Associate Producer. Our theme music is Speak Upon It by Boston's own Ed O.G. Reza Daya is our sound designer. Voiceover direction by Athena Karkanis. Research from Jeremiah Mannion. Fact-checking by Matt Mahoney. The Globe's executive editor is Nancy Barnes. Thanks to former Globies Brian McGrory and Scott Allen and to Boston Globe Media CEO Linda Henry. Additional interviews and audio courtesy of Jason Hayer and Little Room Films. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Allison Cohen on the HBO podcast team. The HBO documentary series Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning is available to stream on MAPS.